there's no better moment than now to come back to your why. Why do you do what you do? Matching what I believe in with what I say and what I do. And it's incredibly difficult. But I think we need to establish that kind of coherence internally. The world has never been changing more rapidly, dislocating the ways we work, learn, and live. On the Learning Future podcast, we discuss the knowledge, skills, and dispositions we all need for our learning future, exploring insights with world-class educators, researchers, policymakers, and leaders from across industries and across the world. Hi, and welcome to the Learning Future podcast. I'm your host, Luca Parry, and it's my delight to be joined today by Dr. Santiago Rincón Gallado. He is a researcher, advisor, and education consultant, and is the chief, the chief research officer at Michael Fullan's team. Uh, Santiago is involved in efforts to transform teaching and learning across educational systems all over the world, in fact, but particularly in the United States, Canada, Latin America, and Australia. Oh, as an educator and organizer, Santiago has worked for over a decade to promote grassroots educational change initiatives in Mexican public schools, serving historically marginalized communities, and was the director of a small NGO that catalyzed a movement to turn conventional classrooms into tutorial networks, which reached over 9,000 schools across Mexico. Santiago holds an EdD uh, in education policy, leadership and instructional practice from Harvard University, and his work explores how effective pedagogies for deep learning can spread at scale. His most recent book is called Liberating Learning, Educational Change as Social Movement. Oh, it sounds so exciting. Santiago, gracias por estar aquí. Thank you for coming onto our podcast. Un gran gusto. It's a pleasure to be here, Luca. Thank you for the invitation. So I'd love, I'd, I, we always start with this question, what's something you learned recently? And there's a lot going on in the world, so it could be anything, but what's a reflection you have? Yeah, I'll say two things. The first one is uh, I've been, I, actually yesterday, I completed a three-month fitness training program, <laughs> something nice. I had never dreamt of doing before. Um, I had made a commitment, especially during this crazy pandemic years to start to engage in learning projects of things that I felt entirely incompetent um, on. And that was one of them. Fitness has always been kind of a, a blind spot for me, something that I always thought I was that wasn't for me. And I just completed a, a three-month um, program of, of fitness, and I'm feeling the best physical shape <laughs> of my life. Um, one, of the thing, one of the reasons why I decided to do that is because I think um, – we need to let our kids see us learning more intentionally, mm. see us struggling to learn things that we struggle with. Um, and for me, that was a phenomenal area to do that. You know, mm. my kids see me working out in the mornings. Uh, they see me sweating, falling on the floor, just not being able to, to do any, you know, any one more push. Um, and I think that's a very important thing that, that we need to, to expose our kids to, just to see us fail, to see us learn. Mm. Uh, I don't think we have granted them um, enough access to that part of what it means to be an adult and what it means to be a human. Yeah. So that's like kind of on the personal side, that's one of the most exciting learning projects I've been engaged in. <laughs> in the more intellectual side, I've been reading a phenomenal book by uh, Alison Gopnik, this cognitive and developmental psychologist from Stanford. It's called The Gardener and the Carpenter. I learned about this book from Richard Elmore, actually, in his oh, class. Wow. In the last podcast, he was seen uh, a few weeks before he passed away. Mm. Um, but uh, the book and the, the title of the book is uh, presents two opposing views of parenting and schooling. One is the gardener, the other is the carpenter. Mm. 
And uh, overall, parenting and schooling, having seen the role as carpenters, as someone who has already an idea in mind of what the kids should be like, and then try to shape them into that preconceived notion. Mm-hmm. And Alison Gopnik, oh, Gopnik advances the idea of um, educating and parent and being a parent as being a gardener, which is more about creating fertile ground and the conditions mm-hmm. for children to develop in whichever way they are meant to. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, the, the, you know, a kind of approach that uh, uh, embraces and cultivates diversity rather than standardization. Um, and in particular, one thing that I've been learning from her that has really kind of uh, been shuffling with my mind is the importance of play. Uh, most of the learning I've been thinking about and promoting so far is based on mastery, on how do we get better at at mastering certain ways of thinking, ways of acting, all those kind of things. And I think I have a good hold on how we can do that, how we can develop powerful learning experiences for mastery. But she also argues that play is such a evolutionary, speaking, in evolutionary terms, play is such a fundamental aspect of childhood that um, uh, that is very important for human evolution. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, she makes the point, and I'll just talk briefly about this, yes, but she yes, makes please. the point that uh, humans have um, very long childhoods compared to almost any other animal, very long childhoods relative to our full yeah. life. And uh, the point she starts to make, and she presents good kind of historical evolutionary evidence to that, is that the reason why um, childhood is so prolonged in the case of humans is because we need, as children and as youth, safe space to play mm. and to mess up things. Yeah. Because that's what allows for, not only for learning what the adults, what the older generations already know, but also to innovate, to present new ideas, to create new solutions to problems that do not yet exist. And that's what evolution has set up as the arrangement mm. for our kids to be able to learn what we have as adults to, to offer them, but also to play with it so that they can find new solutions and new problems that will kind of save humanity. Uh, yeah. So play for me is such a big area that yeah. I have not explored uh, and that I want to uh, start looking into more, more deeply. That's so interesting, Santiago. Thanks for those reflections. I mean, this idea... Uh, I think it's Plato probably misattributed um, was, you know, you learn more from one hour of play with someone than from a year of conversation. There's something around the, the idea of the emergent nature of play. And I, I yeah. love, I love the organic metaphor. It's, it's, you know, um, I use it all the time. And what are the conditions? What are the features of the ecosystem for human growth and development? And I, I, I think, and, you know, both of us have, done you've done more study but there was a lot of study and you know around instruction you know and instructional leadership instructional practice and instruction has a place and yet i am i am i suppose reflective if not concerned about instruction being taken as transactional and being like i just i teach you learn as opposed to what is what is the, the gardener tends the designer creates an experience so yep. I, I'm really interested yep. in exploring this more with you because, yeah, you're so yep. – and, and the other aspect, of course, which is 
education as social change itself or as a social yeah. movement and yeah. the liberating nature that, you know, our colleague Michael Fullan always talks about systems that liberate as opposed yeah. to command and control. So, so yeah. take us on a bit of a journey around the work that you've been discovering, uh, you know, yeah. directly and, and also some of the big themes you think that matter most for this juncture. <laughs> that- that we Good. find ourselves so, in here as you joined from Toronto that's just gone into the third lockdown, which is, of course, another, another aspect of this as well. Yeah. What, that's what, good. Yeah. So let me start with the first thing you mentioned, and then we're solving in building up from there. Um, with regards to instruction, uh, I don't like the term because instruction is about telling others what to do, right? That's an instruction. Yeah. It's you tell someone else what to do, and, they, and, and success is when they do as they're told, which, by the way, is what we know how to do well with schools. It's about um, supporting kids so that they learn to be taught. They learn to do as they're told. And that's the fundamental and most profound lesson we all learn in school. And that's an important lesson, don't get me wrong. I mean, I have young children. Mm -hmm. I know how important it is that they listen (laughs) to what I'm saying. And uh, at least most of the time, you know, eat their dinner, uh, Mm -hmm. brush their teeth, uh, all those kind of things. So that's important. The problem is that it's the most dominant uh, part of the experience of our children in schools. Uh, and the problem is that when that's this, what our kids are systematically exposed to, what we are doing is to hamper another important thing that we need to cultivate in schools, which is their capacity and their curiosity to learn on their own. Mm. Those are two very different things, learning to be taught and learning to learn are very different things. And when you put too much effort into getting them to do as they're told, what you are doing is uh, cutting their wings and yeah. con- constraining their capacity, their natural ability to learn on their own and their mm-hmm. joy for learning. And that's that's when it's problematic. The way that Alison Goblin talks about it is beautiful. And I, and I think it comes back to the question of instruction and why, why I don't like the term. You cannot make children learn. We can only let them learn. Nice. There's a very fundamental difference there. And most of our efforts in most of our schools are on trying to make them learn, try to shape them to decide when they have to do what, what kind of things they're supposed to know at what point in, you know, what day in the year, Mm -hmm. all those kind of things. Mm -hmm. And it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous if what we're thinking about is to cultivate our human minds and hearts in the way that will be helpful for our humanity to thrive. Yeah. Uh, if what we want to do is to, you know, to create a, a controllable and predictable um, and, uh, and, and, and docile society, mm. then that's what we should continue to do. But I don't think that's what the project is now. And I'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. Mm. Um, at the core of my work is a very simple idea. And the idea is learning is a practice of freedom. If there's one thing that I would like the listeners to take home is this basic idea that learning is a practice of freedom. This is not uh, just philosophical or ideological definitions. I think if we look at what are the conditions under under which we learn best, freedom is a fundamental aspect of it. If we think about the things we know how to do well and how we learn them, we will remember those things with warm feelings because we learned them under conditions of freedom. Mm. It was something we wanted to learn 
Maybe not at the beginning, but then as we got engaged into it, there was no stop to it. We really wanted to do it. But we had a lot of autonomy to determine how long, how much time we were going to put into this, what we're going to be doing, with whom, um, at what times, um, when we were, when, when we had, you know, when we had attained the master we thought was uh, we wanted to attain, all those kind of things. And that's freedom. Mm -hmm. uh, also, we learned in conditions of, um safety psychological safety when yeah. you are learning as a practice of freedom you don't have to worry about making mistakes actually you you are eager to make mistakes to learn from their from them quickly uh, mm -hmm. and all those kind of things and what that creates i mean the thing is coming back to the idea of play uh the reason why play is such an important mechanism for us humans is that when you're playing you don't care about either making a fool of yourself or messing things up or, or, or failing or falling. That's part of it. Uh, and it's such a fundamental ingredient of good, powerful learning. Um, now, where does this idea come from? I, I have had the pleasure, I've, I've had the, um, the pleasure and the, the privilege of working over uh, for over a decade in Mexico, in uh, in some of the most remote communities, uh, in you know scattered uh, historical marginalized communities um, all over the country, in Mexico, and um, uh, I got to meet a, a phenomenal mentor, Gabriel Camara. He continues to be my you know my lifelong mentor, who brought me into the field of education, um, and and with him. You know, when we were working together, um, we decided that we wanted to, or he, he, you know, he had in mind creating a pedagogical model that would allow kids in the most remote communities in the country to learn by themselves, supported by young instructors or young teachers mm. who uh, would be, be kind of their guides in the process of learning to learn. Uh, the most important decision that this team made was to keep a very strong link between design and execution. So as leaders of this program, we took responsibility to show that our ideas about learning communities, all those kind of things, mm. could be um, realized in the most remote corners of the country. So we spent a lot of time in the communities, mm. not to assess the teachers, not to assess the students, but to assess our strategy. And that the idea was to refine the strategy over time to start developing a, a more and more so a clear, concise, simple version of our, of our model, of our training model. The most important moment in our history as a team came when we realized that we were expecting young teachers in the most remote communities to be uh, multidisciplinary uh, guides to our right. kids. But we trained them separately based on our areas of expertise. I was the expert in math and English. Right. So I, pro I trained teachers and, and uh, state level leaders in those areas. But the expert in history would train them in history and the expert in reading and writing would train them in reading and writing. Yet we were hoping, we were expecting that our teachers were able to support the independent learning of their students in all disciplines. Yeah. There was a major contradiction yeah, in what absolutely. we were yeah. doing <laughs> and we were what we were hoping our teachers to do. So what we ended mm. up saying is, if we want teachers 
to create learning communities in the most remote corners of the country, we need to become a learning community first. So as a mathematician, I started to learn science from the expert in science. I started to learn uh, to read literature from the expert in literature. I learned, I started to explore history, historic moments of our, his, our national history with the support of the historian. And I supported also the learning in mathematics and English of my colleagues. And what we discovered is that, you know, even though we had our degrees and we were so, so kind of tight on our knowledge of our specialty, we were fundamentally incompetent in all the other <laughs> ways to think about and, 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 uh, and, and understand the world. Yeah. Um, and that was a very liberating experience in the sense that first we realized that our credentials were not enough, even though we had been through school, mm. to really have learned what we had, what we were supposed to learn in our, in our, uh, in our time in school. Yeah. Uh, but also with expert support of someone who knew very well about the things we were learning about, mm. uh, we discovered our capacity to learn. And that was that was a life-changing experience for me. Nice. Just discovering my capacity to learn to think as a scientist, to try to explain, for example, why airplanes fly and how, right? Uh, when I started to learn that I was able to decipher a poem that initially would feel very obscure and confusing and unnecessarily complicated, and then started to discover the beauty in making sense of those and uh, um, of 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 the message core message of the poet uh, and enter into conversation with them mm. that was beautiful i started to write like crazy uh in that time because i discovered my capacity to learn and let me just say just very briefly throughout school i was always a very good student i had the best grades in my group every year every month I had a certificate, you know, just showing yeah. that I Achieve had the greatest yeah. grades in my in my in my in my in my grade in my grade in my cohort, all the way from elementary school to middle school to high school, the best grades. I represented my school in academic competitions, all those kind of things. Yeah, yeah. But I graduated from high school not knowing how to read and write, um, and uh, I think it comes down to the basic idea that I, that, that, you know, that I that I shared uh, earlier. Yeah, I learned to be taught. Yeah, and I was I excelled at it. Yeah, I learned to understand the expectations of my teachers and to fulfill them to the letter. I learned to understand what I needed to do to get the best possible grade and to do it. And the 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 tragedy of it, the beauty and the tragedy of it is that you can do all that without having a clue about what you're learning about. You can memorize, you know, hundreds yeah. of pages of information for a test if you have enough motivation. And I think I have my reasons for why I ended up undergoing that pain <laughs> of memorizing full chapters of books and, and putting them, emptying them into, into the exams. Um, but you can do that and really not learn anything of mm. substance and significance. Mm. So for me, the experience of learning, uh, discovering my power of to learn was, was healing. Um, it was liberating. And, uh, and it's, it's a gift that, uh, that keeps on giving. <laughs> it's one of the most amazing blessings I have received in my life. Yeah. The, the, the confidence in my capacity to learn.
And I have made my personal commitment to dedicate my life to create, uh, to help create schools and school systems where this is the basic lesson that our children learn. Mm -hmm. They learn about their power to learn, their confidence to learn. Um, and I think that's one of the most important legacies we can leave to them. Mm -hmm. um, and the problem is that most of what we have uh, done with our schools and our school systems, not intentionally, not with yeah. bad intention, yeah. is to develop the strong belief, the deep belief amongst most of our people mm. that they're not good enough, yeah. that they will never be good at math, that, they, that they're not, you know, not made for literature, that uh, reading is not their thing. I think there's something very problematic about that. So because that ends up constraining our freedom and our potential. I've, there's there's so much to unpack there, Santiago. Um, but this premise of learning as the practice of freedom, I think, is so powerful. And the notion as well that you can be an exceptional student and not be a self-aware learner. You know, this idea of discovering one's own capacity to learn um, in lifelong and life-wide and life-deep ways. I think it's just such a really powerful insight. Take us, just because you've got such a wonderful vantage point, I'm sure anyone listening to this, this episode is nodding along, you know, because all of us have an experience uh, of the education system. And we either were one type of student or another. We succeeded, we played, you know, we did well against whatever well meant or success meant. How did we get here is, is my first question. Yeah. Yeah. And then where do we go from here? How yeah. do we create, as you say, you know, liberating learning environments? Uh, yeah. And how do we make that? Be, how do we become the gardeners, not just the carpenters? Yeah. yeah. So how did we get here? Um, I think the first thing to, 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 to acknowledge, to recognize, to see, is that it's not that schools don't work. Schools work for the purposes they were designed for. Yeah. And schooling, compulsory schooling, massive schooling, has historically had three fundamental functions. Custody, taking care of our children while the parents are working, control, and sorting. That's what schools are designed to do and what they continue to do very well if, you know, if we look back at the history of compulsory schooling systems, they were an invention of the industrial times after the Industrial Revolution, when massive waves of immigration were coming into the cities from the countryside to find work in the factories. Societies needed a space where to keep children while the parents were working, while on the countryside, it was safe for children to just hang out with their parents and help them grow the land and harvest and knit and all those things and care for animals. Factories were no longer a safe space for children to be. So there needed to be a space where they could be taken care of while the adults were working. That has the first function. The second function was, was control. I mean, once you have a bunch of kids in a building, you need to find a way to keep them more or less safe and, and alive. But also, schooling became and a alive. good mechanism. I like the and alive. alive. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Uh, but schools became a good mechanism for social control. 
with the massive waves of immigration coming into the cities, you could anticipate a lot of chaos coming out of it if you didn't have mechanisms of social control. And uh, schooling became a really good mechanism for that, right? And the third one was sorting. With the emergence of factories, the need was uh, massive amounts of, um, of cheap labor, of, uh, of labor, and uh, a few leaders, a few people who would run the factories, right? So, so uh, the schools became a good uh, institution to sort out students under very arbitrary criteria to decide who would have access to which kind of opportunities. In this case, who would take the lead in managing managing roles in the factories and who would just provide um, uh, uh, labor, you know, the, 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 their kind of brute force in the factories. That That is what schools are designed to do. And up to this day, they do those three things pretty well. Uh, and... Uh, and we can debate whether these are functions that we still want our, uh, our schools to to um, to provide, at least custody. All of us who have young children, I think we all agree that that's such an important thing that schools do. You know, we, it took a pandemic to realize how crucial that function alone Absolutely. is for uh, yeah. children, right? Yeah. Uh, so at least that I think we, we should maintain. Control and sorting, I think they're outdated. I think they're not doing a good service to our productivity, to our um, uh, to our uh, prosperity, to our democracies, to our social harmony. Uh, so I think those have to be removed. But custody, at least, has been a very important function, and I would anticipate it still being an important function of schools as we know it. So how do we get here? Schools have been for over a, over a century doing what they were designed to do. And we, over generations, we have learned through pure exposure to, to schooling what it looks like to learn, to teach, to lead schools, to lead the education systems. Schooling, the default culture of schooling that we have created is almost running in our veins. It's almost second nature to us, to all of us. Yeah. We have created a culture that, um, um, uh, that privileges learning kids to be taught, you know, taking care of them, controlling them, yeah. and classifying them. Yeah, and that's wow. what we all have learned from hundreds, thousands, uh, probably, I don't know, I haven't made the calculations, but thousands of hours of You're our waking hours yeah, of our yeah. childhood. I know, but I, I, I you know, I, no, I should indeed. have made yeah. the calculation. Before Tens of thousands made, of hours. Thousands Absolutely. of hours, yeah. most of our waking time uh, exposed to these institutions that have become second nature to us. Yeah. So I think that's how we got here. And uh, if there's one thing that educational research, research on educational change has shown us is how incredibly resilient the default culture of schooling is. You know, even yeah. in our um, um, science fiction, uh, think about Harry Potter, when Hogwarts get destroyed after the battle, ultimate battle with Voldemort, what they rebuild is another school, <laughs> just a school building, just the same way. In our imagination, uh, we have mm. fallen very short wow. to what the alternative might be. We yeah. continue to think about the building where kids are divided by grades, where 
we divide their time in 50 minute blocks so that they can move from one lesson to the next where we create external incentives to uh, to secure some compliance to yeah. what we ask them to do uh, and we test them and we say who ha who has access to which opportunities and we send them through that machinery yeah. for all of their childhood and their youth. And one thing that we haven't researched enough is how damaging that is to the human spirit. Mm -hmm. A very good friend of mine, actually, the 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 wife, the late the late wife of Richard Elmore, Kirsten Olson. And I want to connect this to what you were saying about most of us have, you know, maybe nothing when I was talking, you know, as I talk mm -hmm. about our experiences experience, with schooling. Yeah. Uh, he, she did a phenomenal study where she was trying to interview people from different walks of life, uh, you know, uh, lawyers and doctors and business people and educators and leaders, polit politicians, etc. And her question was very basic. It was she wanted to capture what were the most important things they learned in school? What were the most powerful learning experiences in school? Her findings led her to the title of her book, which is Wounded by School. Wow. That was a consistent experience mm. of, of, of all the people she interviewed. She was intentionally looking for powerful learning experiences. And again, this is not intentional. It is not that teachers are bad people. Teachers are some of the most amazing people I've ever met. I mean, they're heroes. They do incredible stuff, mm. you know, just keeping our kids entertained and happy while we're working. I have only two kids. And when I'm on my own with them, with only two of them, I feel like that's all I can do, right? Yeah. And, if, yeah. you know, at the end of the day, they all their body parts are what they're supposed to be. They're still breathing. <laughs> I feel like I'm a successful parent. So yeah. teachers take care of much yeah. bigger groups of people who are not their kids and keep them entertained and safe and happy. So it is not about, and they do it with incredible resourcefulness and commitment and passion. I mean, it's amazing what teachers around the globe have been doing these, these days. Yeah. They have been stepping up in ways that no, no educational system has stepped, you know, has been prepared to step up with. Mm. Uh, they are carrying the load of keeping a safe space for our children to feel some kind of stability. Mm. So it's not, when I'm saying what I'm saying about the wounds of schooling, I'm not placing the responsibility on teachers. I'm placing it on the culture that we as societies and as systems have yeah. created, the culture of schooling that stifles rather than um, encourages learning, creativity, curiosity. Again, we haven't done enough research around this. And I don't think, I mean, I, I don't see my role as, as trying to see all of the harmful effects of schooling, because I think we need to develop more of a for agenda than an Absolutely. against agenda. Yeah, so it's not great. about just criticizing schooling for all the yeah. damage it's done, although I think that there's a place to it. Just mm -hmm. so if it helps us if uh, to, to as a wake up call yeah. to what we have been doing. His late, in his last interview, Richard was just saying that, it may be too late when we, when we realize how profound the damage it is that we wow. have inflicted upon our children and youth unintentionally, yeah. but by subjecting them to the control yeah. of schooling. And the um, classification, as you, you know, say. But we have, I mean, the thing is, we have many, if you look at the trends in creativity, young mm. children 
there's this um, uh, Torrance test uh, on creativity, and it's been used longitudinally to follow the development of creativity in young children all the way till their um, late teens and their adult years. Um, and what they find is that at, at age two, 98% uh, of children qualify as creative geniuses, 98% of them. Yeah. Um, by the time they're 20, I don't know if you know what the percentage is, and I don't. Uh, you, you probably do. Uh, it's not 98%. It's, I think it's, well, my guess is 5%. I remember, I have seen this somewhere. Yeah. Um, I, I, if I remember correctly, it's 3%. Wow. Okay. Three <laughs> percent qualifiers. I was being as, generous. As, as creative geniuses, <laughs> you were being generous. Um, wow. And most of the researchers that have been documenting this are attributing this to schooling. Yeah. And I think that's true. I mean, that's what the, you know. Sir Ken Robinson has been pointing out. All, you know, Indeed. pointed out for decades and yeah. uh, or for over a decade. Um, and uh, this is not a new critique. What I'm saying here. It's not new. It's not my original idea. It's something that the that the critics of schooling have been saying for for decades. John yeah. Dewey criticized yes. the industrial model of schooling yeah. uh, in the seventies. Ivan Illich, Paulo Freire criticized yeah. schooling as stifling of human creativity and learning and liberty and freedom. Um, in John Taylor Gatto in in New York, a Teacher of the Year, New York State of the Year, he decided to quit teaching after receiving the state of the year the the teacher of the of the the state teacher of the year right. in new york because he didn't want to continue uh, hurting children wow. anyways uh, so this so is Santiago, not a new idea but yes yeah tell me tell me then because this is it's true you know all the humans in these systems are such overwhelmingly so not always but overwhelmingly so caring dedicated passionate and yet as you say it's this kind of it's the culture kind of also called the hidden grammar at times, you know, the, the kind of space in between people that, and yeah. how resilient systems are to self-transformation. You know, they really just want to maintain kind of a homeostasis. And so they will dispel any significant <laughs> innovations in some way. So the yeah. system itself is kind of acting as, yeah. as this kind of dynamic, emergent, complex state, yeah. which yeah. is why I think it's just so difficult to shift things. So take us from the, the kind of the avoidance the goal. To the solution. The, well, the, and it's very important, as you say, the avoidance goal yeah. Uh, yeah. towards the approach goal, you know, if we yeah. use psychology. What is it? What, where do we need to go? And how do you yeah. think we, we get there? You know, knowing yeah. that this is, this is a core of the work that you do. Yeah. Um, and I'll try to be brief because I'm aware we're already past the time. That's fine. Uh, I'm enjoying this very uh, much. Yeah, it's great. We are as a planet, as humanity, we're in a moment of crisis, that a level of crisis that none of us had known was possible. Every, all our certainties are shaken up, economic, social, political, everything is shaking up. And uh, crisis, uh, as defined by you know, the revolutionary intellectual Antonio Gramsci, is a moment where the old system is dead, but the new system is not yet born. Uh, if I were to borrow the term, the Chinese term of crisis, which is Wei Ji, it has two concepts attached to it that, that create the word crisis. Wei means danger, and Ji um, means multiple possibilities. There are multiple possibilities, and that's what summarizes a good crisis. Yeah. Now, in a state of crisis, um, you don't know. There's nothing to guarantee. 
that the that the system that's coming will be better than the previous one. And uh, by the time the pandemic hit, and during the first months of the pandemic, what became very clear, just hit us on the face, was that what's at stake is the human project. It is at stake. I mean, we're seeing racial violence, gender violence, violence against children, against immigrants, against those who look different than dominant groups, mostly white supremacist groups. But um, the, the, the degree of systemic and personal violence um, that, that we're seeing and th that we were starting to get just attuned to, used to, is just as unsustainable, just for the human project to survive. So we are in a moment again, in a crisis, where there's nothing to guarantee that the next system will be better, and the human project is at stake. So what we need to do is to be very intentional in rebuilding the human project, uh, in be delivered about building it in our everyday lives, in our organizations, etc. So what does that mean? We need to ask ourselves as educators and as people concerned in education, what do we educate for? I have my own answer, and I think I would invite all mem each member in the audience to think about what do you think we should be educating for? I have four main priorities that I think sum up what I believe education should be for. Education should be for our children and our young people to know themselves, to learn and think by themselves, to care for others, and to better the world. I think those are good for a good kind of set of four major goals of what we should be educating for. And if we look at those goals vis-a-vis -vis what we're doing in schooling, we will realize that we'll probably moving away from those goals instead of helping cultivate them, right? Yeah, yeah. So the grammar of schooling is profound. It permeates our thinking, our beliefs, our hearts. Our, it's, we are shaped in the culture of school. The solution is to replace the grammar of schooling with the language of learning. That's the, that's the basic idea. That's great. And uh, one of the things, as I started this conversation, one of the things we need to start doing more is teach less, learn more in, 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 in public so that our children see us learning. Because learning so far in our schools, but in our societies, adult learning remains invisible from the eyes of our children. Yes. Learning is something that teachers do when they're preparing their lesson. But when they come to the class, they teach. That's and great. I think that's what that's creates, yeah. creates a big chasm between uh, what teachers know and what, 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 uh, what kids end up learning. Mm. I think they end up believing that only these very brilliant minds can really understand <laughs> these things because they don't have access to all that the messiness. The, yeah, the, that the learning process is. itself. Yeah. The process, the, yeah. the, the messiness of it. Yeah. You know, sending our kids to school and expect them to learn on their own, to learn how to learn on their own, is like wanting them to learn to play soccer 
and creating soccer schools and creating dividing the lessons in different subjects so the rules of the game and the the positions and uh, how to kick a ball and uh, the you know all those kind of things how to cheer up for your team uh-huh. what teams are what are the tournaments you take all those classes you pass exams all those kind of things but without letting them see a football match yeah. a soccer match yeah. right okay. we learn through exposure to the masterful practice that we want to learn we want our kids to learn on their own but we don't show them as adults what that thing called learning looks like when uh, when you do it nice. <laughs> uh, so i think at the core i mean that's that's a very simple idea but i yeah. think it's a powerful one because we all know we all have powerful experiences of learning in our portfolio mm. most of them didn't happen in school but we may know how to cook or how to sing songs, how to play an instrument, how to play a sport, how to tell good jokes, how to make friends. Uh, you know, we, we may know things. We have learned to do things very well, most mm-hmm. often outside of school. And we need to come back to that knowledge because there's also a lot of science that's backing up these ideas that we have developed through experience about under, what are the conditions under which we learn most powerfully. And we need to start embracing these ideas and bringing them to life with our children, knowing that we cannot make them learn. We can only let them learn. We can create the gardens where they can flourish. Now, just 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 to close up, because I'm just to close the argument, this requires deep and widespread cultural change. We need to change in very fundamental ways the way we believe, our beliefs around education, our uh, discourse, our everyday practice as teachers, as school leaders, as system leaders, because all we've done is to maintain a system that is good at controlling and sorting and providing custody. It's good at at, at, uh, getting people used to being taught as opposed to letting them learn by themselves and with each other. Um, uh, So we are all kind of training this mindset in these practices. So what we need is deep, widespread cultural change. And throughout history, the most powerful vehicles for deep and widespread cultural change have been social movements. Mm. That's been the mechanism humanity has developed to change culture rapidly and uh, in a widespread manner and in deep ways. I'm not thinking, I'm not talking here about the confrontational nature of social movements. Of course, there are moments where oppressed groups don't have any other resource than violence to, to, to establish some kind of power, to have some kind of leverage. When I'm talking about social movements, I'm referring more about their role as vehicles for cultural change. Right. And that's where I think a lot of learning can, we can gain a lot of learning. Uh, because in the logic of operation of, of social movements lies some of the keys as to how to change this whole thing. Mm. It, it is not about developing a particular innovation or a new policies or new programs. Those will be important elements of the change we need to promote. But our basic role is to ignite movements that yes. liberate learning, that right. practice and nurture learning as a practice of freedom. Let me just close. And I, I promise this time I'm really close. Oh, nice. <laughs> just the notion that this idea of educational change as a social movement is not just theoretical elucubration. To the contrary, it comes from examples that we have seen over the past decades, mostly in the global south, that have been doing exactly that. 
They have been liberating learning. They have been doing it the most remote communities in their countries. Mm. And they have, they have done it at scale in thousands of schools. I'm talking wow. about the Learning Community Project or the tutorial networks in Mexico. I'm talking about Escuela Nueva in Colombia. Yeah. I'm talking about uh, community schools in Egypt about um, the activity-based learning project in this, the southern state of Tamil Nadu in India, thousands of schools, amazing results. And when different people have been studying them, they, the people who don't know about the other initiatives or don't know each other, have been calling these social movements. They're saying, this is how they operate. They're challenging dominant patterns of social interaction. Mm. Uh, and they're doing it through tactics that are very similar in nature to what social movements do. Um, I think that's the nature of the that's that's the nature of the work ahead. Yeah. I think yeah. that's what what's worth pursuing. Um, I think the cost of not doing it is going to be too high. Yes. Nothing less than the human project. Nothing Absolutely. less than it. Uh, so I think you know, and at the same time, I think it's a very exciting project. I think it's something that can can build on a lot of uh, collective power um, across entire educational systems, being between countries, beyond schools, etc. Those ideas are described in more detail in my book, Liberating Learning Educational Changes to Social Movement. But I mm -hmm. think in this conversation, you get, I know, uh, 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 if, you, if you don't like to read, this is a quick overview a, of a, what you would find in the book. A, a passionate overview as well, Santiago. Uh, look, I just feel very grateful not, not just to have be having this conversation with you but also that this is the this is the conversation we need to have i mean you'll talk about the human project itself yeah. and the notion of crisis uh you know there's the cost one of the challenges is that we don't often cost for the status quo what we cost for is the change how much is going to cost us to change into this yeah. new paradigm or the new cultural aspect yeah. um yeah. You know, and, and that we need to shift from this grammar of schooling to, you know, the language of learning. I think that's a beautiful way of reframing it. Uh, I feel like we need many more conversations to just even tap into a few deep dives around each of those. Um, but I would love for you to leave us with a take-home message. You know, at, at yeah. this point in time, what is it, April 2021, uh, you know, what is it that, what do you want to say to people that are, you know, doing the work of education that are thinking, thinking deeply about the role of learning in their own lives and in their organizations yeah. uh, at this point? Yeah, um, I think it's three things, if, if, if you don't mind, and I'll try to of be course. brief. Okay. The first one is, there's no better moment than now to come back to your why. Why do you, what you, why do, you do what you do? And we're living in times when uh, I personally have taken on the project of matching what I believe in with what I say and what I do. Nice. And it's incredibly difficult. But I think we need to establish that kind of coherence internally. So come back to your why and start to see how can you turn that why into your everyday reality. Mm. That's one. Okay. The second one is consider the idea that learning is a practice of freedom. I invite you to at least consider it, but test it, put it, put it to the test. And I, uh, I, don't, I don't ask you to believe it blindly. But consider it. Let it kind of go into your heart and see how that how that resonates or not. Mm -hmm. But if it does resonate, uh, I will invite you to do as much as you can to make that a reality in your life and in the life of, of the people you you know those whose lives you touch, mm -hmm. your kids, your colleagues, etc. And the third one 
is the following. The most, um, it, it may be that there won't be much money to, uh, to do this kind of work. And my mentor used to say uh, it in a beautiful way. He said, armed intervention, military interventions are, are very expensive. They cost billions of dollars. Military interventions are very expensive. And that's the story, the history of education reform as well. And they're expensive because you have to get people to do things that they wouldn't otherwise do. Mm-hmm. It's about getting people to do things that they wouldn't otherwise do. Military interventions are very expensive. Revolutions are free. And they are free because they catalyze, they trigger the single resource that's equally distributed amongst us humans. That's not my my idea. That's what Ivan Illich said 50 years ago. The single resource most equally distributed amongst us human beings is our capacity to act. There's nobody who can take that away from us. And if we start to organize it, to, 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 to put it together collectively, there's a lot of power there. That's how we have changed the world mm-hmm. over and over again. Not we, we as humanity. And, um, uh, and that's a resource that has been terribly mis- underutilized in our educational change efforts. So it's not going to be about resources, but about resourcefulness. Nice. It is not about getting more money, yeah. but about how you develop good strategy. And a good strategy, as defined by Marshall Gass, uh, one of my phenomenal mentors from the Harvard Kennedy School, a thinker and doer in the social movements field. Strategy is how you turn what you have into what you need to get what you want. That's Mm. it. That's what strategy is. It's not about looking for more money, but about seeing what you want, being clear about your why, looking at what you have, trying to think what do you need to get there and how do you mobilize what you have and turning it to what you need to get what you have. Social mm-hmm. movements have operated that way. They don't have money. They operate on collective will. Yeah. And put together, it's, it's incredible. What it can do is just amazing. Uh, I've seen it with my own eyes. I've seen what happens when kids awaken to the power of learning and they're unstoppable. And the same happens with teachers and the same happens with uh, bureaucracies and, and yeah. school leaders, etc. Yeah. So I cannot wait to see um, these kind of movements emerging more, and also, of course, to support the development of um, as many movements as possible. Um, I'm committed to dedicate my life to this project. Uh, and I think the world is better off for it, Santiago. Thank you so much for joining us for the Learning Future podcast and more broadly for just, yeah, championing this work so passionately. It's been a delight to speak with you today. Thank you so much, Luca. Pleasure was mine. Thanks for listening to the Learning Future podcast. To find out more about our work, drop into thelearningfuture.com and follow us at Learning Future on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. Here's to building a world of thriving learners together.